Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. In this series, we are trying to recover a healthy, a robust doctrine of creation. And in order to do that, we've been trying to do the following. First of all, to look at the impact of the neglect of this doctrine, the impact it has had in the church, in the academy, as well as in society. We've also seen that the story of creation cannot be told separately from the story of redemption. Likewise, we cannot tell the story of redemption apart from the story of creation. The one thing that ties them together, there are many things, but one of the things that ties them together is that they have the same purpose, the same end, the same telos. Also, we've seen that we we can only recognize this world as creation because of God's redemptive work. If God, in fact, had not redeemed us and made us his people, we would not be able to see that God is the creator. As Christians, we confess that things are not as they always have been or as they always will be. The world is, in fact, in fact, a place of suffering and pain. But when we say that the world is not as it has always been or as it will always be, we acknowledge this is rooted in the realization that God is, in fact, redeeming the world. That one day this redemption will be complete. The conviction that God is redeeming the world, in fact, should change everything about how we live in this world. Since in Jesus Christ we know that the world is the creation that God is redeeming, then we live in it with trust, with expectation, with joy. We are anticipating, we are waiting for the redemption of God's creation, and one day it will be complete. So, as Christians, we must confess as well as live out that what we know about creation, we learn through God's redemption. Also, we have seen that in order to have a biblical view of creation, and with it a biblical view of, or doctrine of redemption, we must have a biblical view of God. As Christians, we confess one God. We believe in one God, who is Father, Son, Spirit. And these three in one work together in creation and redemption. Now, we cannot, we will never fully understand God as Father, Son, and Spirit. If we did, that would be to reduce God or to elevate ourselves, and neither one is going to happen. What we affirm that we do know about God is that God is life. God is not merely the living one, as though somehow he had life and we have life apart from him. Um, It's not as though there are a variety or various ways of life. Even though in our culture people speak of various lifestyles, the reality is God is life. And one either chooses to live with God's life or one chooses death. Those are the only two choices, God's life or death. And so as Jonathan Wilson has written in his book, that 
an alternative lifestyle is simply another way to die. You know, to live apart from God's life is simply to choose death. Now, when we say that there is one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, we affirm that God lives by relationship, and this relationship involves three persons. If there were only two persons in the Godhead, then you would have an exchange, a reciprocity, if you wish. But when you have Father, Son, and Spirit, you have an interchange. Uh, It isn't merely reciprocal. You have something that is ongoing and, in fact, forms a relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit create out of God's own life. God has life, the three members, Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, it isn't simply two, or it isn't simply one, this solitary deity. It is, in fact, the three in one. In the life of this triune God, the Father freely gives himself to the Son, and the Son freely gives himself to the Father. And in giving to each other life, what we find is the Spirit. He is receiving from and giving to the Father and the Son fully and eternally. Giving and receiving we know as life. We may also refer to it as love. Now, what we've been trying to do the last few weeks is to develop what has been called a Trinitarian grammar of creation. And in order to do that, we must begin with something more familiar, and that is a Trinitarian grammar of redemption. In the scripture, we see and we freely confess that in redemption, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We confess that the Father has sent the Son, that the Son does the will of the Father, and the Spirit completes the, works of, the work of redemption. This, as Christians, we freely confess. When it comes to creation, it isn't quite as clear, perhaps. We lack a certain clarity. But in fact, we find the three members of the Godhead involved as well. Creation comes from the Father, through the work of the Son, by the life of the Spirit. So what is true of God's work in redemption, of which we have much more information in the New Testament, is also true of God's work in creation. In each In creation and redemption, each member has a different role. And again, it's much clearer when it comes to redemption than it is in creation, but by taking the one that is clearer, it gives us, it sheds light on that which perhaps is less clear. We have seen that creation is now not as it should be. You see, this giving and receiving, the life of God, giving, receiving, is no longer the pattern that the world chooses to follow. The world is in rebellion against God's rule and God's way of life. Instead of giving and receiving, what we find in our world is taking and keeping. There is not this, I'm not saying it's completely absent, but the pattern that we find generally is that people desire to take and to keep for themselves. In scripture, the word for this taking and keeping is death. Because giving and receiving is, in fact, life. As we saw last week in Genesis 3, we see the story of Eve, that when she saw the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
The key to understanding this act is, in fact, that she took something. She did not believe that God had given and would continue to give all that she needed for life. She was not willing to be the person who received from the giving God. Instead, she chose to take it for herself. And in doing so, she turned away from life, in which she would receive from the one who gives, she turned to death that she would take it and keep it. To summarize or to distill what we have seen regarding the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit in light of the doctrine of creation is that we need to have, in fact, a correct and a healthy view of God who is Father, Son, and Spirit if we are going to have a healthy and robust doctrine of creation. The reality is, though, a part of it is because of our sinfulness, part of it is because of our finiteness. The reality is, when it comes to God as Father, Son, and Spirit, we tend to go off track, and, and various people have quite deliberately, but I think even as Christians, we find ourselves going off track in which we no longer speak of the three members of the Trinity, but we may speak of two at a given time and neglect one, or speak of one and neglect the other two. Our errors in such grammar will in fact result in a tragic uh, misunderstanding of what creation is about and what God's gift is about. If we could put it simply, bad grammar leads to bad thinking, it leads to bad living, and to be very, very specific, I would say that it leads to bad praying. That this in fact may be the first place where this going off tangent shows up in our prayer lives. So let's consider some of the mistakes we might make grammatically when it comes to God. That we would speak of Father, Son, but no Spirit. Consider what happens if we have the Father and the Son, but there is no Holy Spirit. Here we would have the Father initiating the work of creation, and the Son implements that work. But where is the Spirit? Where is the Spirit to complete it? In such a case, God would in fact plan creation and bring it into being, but there would be no continuing relationship with it. If you think about it, if we speak only of God the Father and God the Son, then where is our ongoing continuing relationship with God even today? By the way, if in fact you say, I believe in the Father and the Son, but somehow neglect the Spirit, you can't even have the Son, because how does Jesus come into the world? We are told that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, we've been saying that creation and redemption cannot be separated, and here's a perfect example. Um, that we cannot have the incarnation in God's creation for redemption apart from the work of the Spirit. If we do this, by the way, if we neglect the Holy Spirit, if we speak only of Father and Son, then in the process, creation becomes nature. And we've seen this in the past few weeks. That God's continuing work in the world is not really seen as a relationship. It's more of a search, uh, search and rescue mission. 
that Jesus came into the world to save certain people, and so he came in and then he's left, and then you know, just sort of every once in a while you have someone get saved, and that's, that's a rescue, and then at the end, all those who get saved will get to go to heaven, and then God will make everything, or that will be the end of the story. Um, in such a view, we would only see the world as fallen. We would see it as marked by sin, by death, and the Christian life simply becomes a matter of holding on for dear life until we die or until Jesus returns. There would, in many ways, not be any place for a continuing relationship with the God of creation. What we would have, in fact, is a disengaged God with an intervening Redeemer. So God makes the world, the Father makes the world, and then it's just a mess. And so he decides to send the Son and that's it. But on, on many levels, God is sort of pulled back. There is not an ongoing relationship. We get deceived, by the way, because we call him father. So we say, well, if he's a father, then there must be a relationship. But the relationship can only take place by the work of the Spirit. When you think about it, such a view means that God has abandoned the world. And, by the way, how do you know, you say, Damon, how do I know if I'm doing father-son but I'm sort of ignoring the spirit? I think one of the keys or one of the clues that we are sort of gone off track in that regard is that we become very utilitarian in our approach to life. We do not see the world for its beauty or its goodness, but only for its usefulness. Because we no longer see the world as creation, we see it as nature. It becomes a burden, something that is to be endured. In order to correct this, we must, in fact, recover the work of the Spirit in creation. And if we do this, by the way, stop and think a minute. If I were to say to you, do you believe that the Spirit of God is what gives life to all creation? I think we would probably say yes. Okay, we'll, we'll take that. If I were to say to you, does the Spirit of God give the same kind of life, the same life to all creation? That is something perhaps we have not thought about. We just might think of the Spirit as this giving this generic life to creation, and that's why creation is alive. But stop and think a minute. This is where redemption helps us with creation. When we talk about the gifts of the Spirit in the church, are all the gifts the same? No, they're not. So in the same way, I would argue that the life that the Spirit gives to creation is quite diverse. And I think opens up, at least for me, my eyes to the possibility of a real ongoing relationship with a person, the Spirit of God, instead of just sort of this generic blob that we call the Spirit who is just sort of giving life left and right, but not really that engaged with us. I think in many ways we're more comfortable speaking of father and son because that speaks of a relationship and spirit is just sort of, well, what is the spirit after all? But in fact, we must have a grammar in which we have one God who is father, son, and spirit. What about the doctrine or the grammar that says we have father and spirit but no son? Stop and think a minute. That If you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
but the spirit is omitted, you might get a sense that something's not quite right. That this, that this picture, this grammar, is in fact quite wrong. Because when I look at creation, I see in fact that there is beauty. I see that there is goodness. And this doesn't fit in with the story of no spirit, uh, which gives life, gives beauty and goodness to God's creation. And so, oftentimes, in order to correct us from going off on one side, we overcorrect and go to the other side, in which we speak of the Father and the Spirit, and then uh, the person of Jesus, I think, in many ways, is set aside. Jesus becomes not a member of the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, but he becomes someone who teaches us how to live in the Spirit, that we look to him for our example. That in him we, we have an exemplar of how we are to see the beauty and goodness in creation. If we're not careful, and there are certainly traditions that have gone this in, in this direction, the world is no longer seen as broken. Not in need of redemption. Because after all we have the Father and we have the Spirit who gives life to all things. And so Jesus just simply becomes this guide that sort of gets us through life. And the good news then is not salvation from a broken world. The good news becomes there is no broken world. The world's just fine the way that it is. We just don't see it. We have been blinded to the goodness and the beauty of God's creation. And so we need to follow the example of Jesus. Recognize that it is in fact the Spirit who gives us these things and see the beauty and goodness in creation. What if we have a view, I think, in overcorrecting for this side, then we go again and we overcorrect, and we have no Father and no Son, only the Spirit. This may sound like the previous error, but this, in fact, I would say is an error that has little or no connection to the Christian faith. Some have neglected the role or the agency of the Spirit in creation, and therefore, the world becomes mechanical. God, the Father, is this great clockmaker. He wound things up. We don't need the Spirit to keep things going because God wound things up and they're slowly winding down. And then when Jesus comes back, then that will be the end of things. Um, some people say that's just not right. And so they go to the, they swing to the opposite extreme or to another extreme. And here they see only the Spirit of God. And here this means that God is solitary, there is no relationship, there is no love until he creates the world. So the Spirit of God is seen as the creator, but he has no life. He has nothing to give. It is, in fact, when he creates the world that suddenly, oh, now I have someone to love and he has purpose. When we speak of the Spirit in this way, we might go lowercase S and not capital S spirit because we're talking about something altogether differently. It's a form of Unitarianism. It's a form where there is only the Father. So let's talk about that error. So we say, well, no, no, we can't go there. And then we're trying to correct again. And here we see only Father. We do not have a Son. We do not have a Spirit.
In this view, the one God who is known as the Father creates the world. He sets the rules for the world. He lets it go its own way. He's the giant or the great uh, clockmaker. And so the world goes its own way, directed by the rules and ordering intrinsic to it by the Creator. In this view, there is a place for Jesus of Nazareth, but not as the Son of God, um, but as someone who, who understood it. He finally got it. That God the Father, in fact, had made the world and God had come up with certain rules that were to live by. And Jesus says, follow me, I know the rules. This is the way that we are supposed to live. In this view, sin is, in fact, us being ignorant. We just don't know what is the right way to live in this world. Or, in fact, we may choose to go against God's rules. So, Jesus is simply an example. He is not someone who redeems us. But what about the Spirit? And this is where it gets interesting because, in fact, this is something we may be guilty of. That the Spirit of God is no longer seen as a person, but more of an afterglow. Um, I know that John Dominic Crossan uh, was asked about the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't believe Jesus was physically resurrected. And he said, well, how would you explain what the, what the gospel writer said? He said, well, this is how I see it. Some of them were still up in Galilee. And Jesus was down in Jerusalem, and he was put to death, and he was buried. Actually, John Dominic Crossan believes that he was eaten by dogs. It's a whole different story. And so, no resurrection... And then days later, the disciples who were in Jerusalem make their way back to Galilee. And the people coming back from Jerusalem are like sad and depressed because Jesus has died. But the people in Galilee, they're still going like gangbusters because the spirit of Jesus is still with them. This is how someone like Cross and Wood, in fact, speak of the spirit of God. It's sort of the afterglow of the presence of Jesus. It isn't actually a person. We wouldn't speak about the Spirit as a person, but merely sort of a, because Jesus has come into my life, therefore, in fact, I'm energized by him, by his example, his courage, um, yeah, his energy. And it, it has changed my life. But this is a way of speaking only of God as Father and not Son and Spirit. Well, what if you, in fact, have no Father, and you have no spirit, you only have the Son. This, I think, is more of a danger to many of us here today than we realize. Because we are deeply committed to being disciples of Jesus Christ. That our Christian life focuses profoundly on the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But if we're not careful, it will do so to the point that there is no place for the Father or the Spirit. If, in fact, we go this route, there are two possible views of creation that may emerge. The first is what we find with the Gnostics. Creation, the material, this is all evil. That somehow some bad God made the world. He's the evil creator. Okay? And that Jesus comes into the world. He's not actually human, but he comes into the world and he tells us, this is how you live in order to escape the bad world. I don't know that that's a danger for us. I think the second one is much more a danger. That is to say, 
we may see creation as merely a testing ground. That I am called here, God has put me here to follow the example of Jesus, and that's what I'm supposed to do. So the world becomes a stage. We've seen this in the past weeks. That it is like in theater, a stage, and at a certain point it'll simply, you know, you break down the scenery and everything. That this is only temporary. What is important is that we follow Jesus. In order to recover a strong, healthy doctrine of creation, we must have a healthy view of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. If we lack one or more members of this God, we will in fact have bad grammar. And one of the results is that we will have a bad view of creation, a wrong understanding of creation. We must have a correct understanding of God who is Father, Son, and Spirit to have a good understanding of creation. With that in mind, the end of our time together today, I want us to turn to creation and find at least one thing today, the Lord willing, next week we will see more, of what Scripture says about creation. Specifically about creation and justice. I think it's safe to say that these are two words or two concepts that we generally don't put together, creation and justice. And yet, if we read the Old Testament carefully, particularly the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, we find time and time again that the wasting away and flourishing of the world, the ability of the land to produce, or its inability to produce, is directly connected to the conformity of God's people and creation, or the other people in the world, to God's justice. That is to say that if in humanity there is injustice, we will see its results in creation. God's justice is the way in which the world becomes God's creation and sustains life. So, if we have justice, then we have a creation that in fact sustains life. If we have injustice, then in fact we should expect that there will be difficulties in creation, that creation will not in fact be able to sustain life as God intends. To the extent that we violate God's justice, then in fact the land will not flourish and sustain life. What this is saying is that when we speak about the land or the environment, we're not talking about a closed system. A system in which you and I, you know, with our pads and papers, can sit down and, and make observations about reality and come up with certain scientific conclusions about this is why such and such happened. The environment, nature, the land, what scripture calls creation, is not something that operates apart from the relationship between God, people, and the land. See, if we're not careful, our view of, of reality and of being a Christian is that's my, my relationship with God. Everything is between me and God. Well, what about this? Well, again, if we're not careful, this simply becomes the setting, the stage, the scenery. But that what's really important is what's going on between me and God. 
And yet, if that were the case, why does God seem so concerned about the stage, about the context? Because God created the world, God is redeeming the world. It isn't just saving us so we get to go to heaven. It is God redeeming his creation. He loves his creation. That which he said was very good, but now has been marred by sin. Because of God's system of justice, there is, in fact, judgment. And judgment is something that happens within the context of creation and redemption, but it is also something that happens within the context of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. If we understand this, and it may take us a while to get our minds around this, if we understand that God's judgment is for the redemption of creation, then in fact it is ultimately not an act of condemnation. For us, I think our synonym for judgment is condemnation. But in fact, what we find in Scripture is that it is for the purpose of redeeming creation. It is an act of grace. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's justice sets this world right as God's creation by redeeming it from the consequences of sin. So, I think a simple analogy would be if in fact you had a serious injury that would require a surgical procedure that required the taking from your body a part of your body, whether it be through amputation or you'd have surgery where they have to cut something out, would you say, that doctor hates me Why is that doctor doing that to me? That seems to be a very judgmental thing to do. When in fact, what the doctor is doing is doing something to save your life. And God's judgment in the same way is within his system of justice is to redeem his creation. When a parent corrects a child, it is for the purpose of preserving the life of the child. Remember many years ago, Um, my nephew uh, for some reason had begun to put marbles in his mouth and he was I think only two years old not not really old enough I think to understand the consequences and so what his mother said to him was if you ever do that again I will spank you harder than I've ever spanked you his guys got real big Well, that seems really harsh, doesn't it? Well, no. The purpose of the discipline is to preserve the life of the child. In the same way, God's judgment on people is a part of the process of redeeming his creation. It isn't because God's some ogre up in heaven who just loves, takes delight in making people's lives miserable. It is, in fact, he is redeeming things. And it's all going toward one direction, by the way. It's going toward the new creation. By the way, when we think of judgment, we see the God, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, each member uh, participating in this judgment. The act of the Father in judgment is on our violations of life. And in fact, part of the judgment is that he withdraws himself from us. And we no longer see him as Father, the Father of creation. 
we now begin to see him as someone of a tyrant, uh, someone that we want to stay away from. When it is the Son who judges us, we in fact have someone who came and lived here and lived a life without sin. So now we have a standard against which we can be measured and we find out that we come far short of the glory of God. And what we find oftentimes among people is that they refuse to accept Jesus or his life as that which will give them new life. And then the act of the Spirit is in fact, I think, when we turn away from God, we begin to live in an illusion, in a mirage. Because it is the Spirit of God who communicates to us we have a relationship with who gives life to each one of us and suddenly when we turn away from that then it is as though God the Spirit says fine you want to live in a fantasy then live in a fantasy several times in the Psalms we find the intriguing statement something to the effect that those who make and worship idols become like them it's a fascinating statement but I think that is part of the judgment of God if, in fact, you say, no, I will not follow the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, then what are you going to end up with? God allows you to go your own way, and that is his judgment on you. The result, I think, of turning from God is we think that we live in the world rather than in God's creation. And so we live with the illusion that we have control, that we can gain understanding on our own, that, in fact, we can choose our own destinies. But at a certain point, I think, in every person's life, the illusion begins to come apart. It begins to disintegrate. And then we have a number of choices. And you find people making these choices. One is they resign themselves to fate. Well, this is just the way it is. The other is that they turn to other gods, usually multiple gods. Or, by God's grace, people turn back to the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who redeems his creation. If, in fact, people turn to the Creator, they, in fact, find that he is the one who is redeeming his creation, and he wants to redeem them, and he has, in fact, a purpose for their life. We begin to understand God's purpose for our lives, this destiny he has for us, when we humbly submit to him, as creator and as redeemer. And then we receive from God the gifts that fulfill our lives and they cause us to flourish, not because of our own ability or our own goodness or our own strength, but because of what we have been given by God as we live in relationship with him. We believe that God brings us into alignment with his creation and his redemption. This, I think, is what we find in our text today. It's in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 42. If you would, follow along as I read, beginning in verse number 5. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. 
I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the desert and its town raise its vo- their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. I I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by the ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. This is but one passage in Isaiah in which we find a vision of the world being filled with God's glory. And in this particular vision, Isaiah sees a new creation come into being. The whole earth is being healed and its purpose is being fulfilled. In this passage, the Lord does battle with evil, the evil of this world, by exposing its lies, by rejecting its claims and structures. And those lies and those structures say that we are to take things and keep them for ourselves. What we find in Isaiah's vision, not only here but throughout his book, is that the new creation is something beyond what we know now. The new creation will not be exactly like the old creation, just sort of cleaned up. It will, in fact, be something that has been redeemed. Let me read to you from Isaiah 25. I'm sorry, Isaiah 65. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God created this world. God is redeeming this world. And one day there will be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. We who are God's people need to understand this. This is the good news. The good news is not that Jesus came to die for us so that we can go to heaven. That is but a small part of the good news. Yes, Jesus did come and it is because of him that we have eternal life. But we need to go back to the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. This is God's world. And it has been corrupted. It has been messed up by sin. 
But God is in the process of redeeming. He loves his creation. God did not simply make a stage for us to appear on. This is his creation. It reflects who he is. And one day there will be a new creation. And as God's people, we need to understand this. To have a healthy doctrine of creation. Which I'm convinced will result in a healthier doctrine of redemption. Instead of it simply getting our ticket punched so we get to go to heaven. It takes on something fantastic, something quite amazing. That we are part of God's redeeming and reconciling the world to himself. And the Lord willing, we will continue our study next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, I hesitate to say this, but I I fear that we are lazy. That the business of understanding your creation and redemption of understanding the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, we would rather just have sort of a shorthand, uh, a new kind of language where we could just say a few words and they would mean a lot more. We don't, we're somewhat troubled with the idea that we have to be engaged on a, a profound level. By your grace, may we come to see that if we do not on some level understand that you are Father, Son, and Spirit. That even now as we are praying to you, our Father, through your Son, by your Spirit, then we will have a faulty view of what you have planned for us, our redemption, and an even faultier view of your creation, the beauty of it, the goodness, the wonder of it. We simply lose touch with that. We live in a world in which it doesn't seem that many people speak of creation. They talk about the environment or nature, mother nature. And as your people in our sloth, we have sort of just gone along with the flow. Instead of standing and affirming that you not only made this world, you are still actively engaged with it by your spirit you are redeeming your creation and we are a part of that project in your grace and in your love you saved us and one day at the end of all things we will be in the new heavens and the new earth this is the good news this is why you sent your son not simply so we don't go to hell it's such a such a narrow view of your great salvation, your great redemption. Some of the things we've talked about in the last few weeks are certainly deep water. I feel like we're in over our heads. By your Spirit, may you give us understanding. And more than that, may we see that there are in fact to be results in our lives. That in our praying, we are to be Trinitarian. In our thinking, in our living, We're not simply to think of you, our Father, or only of Jesus, or only of the Spirit, 
but to recognize that each one of you in giving and receiving among yourselves have also given and received from us. This is life. And by your grace, may we choose life and not death. Death, the pattern that we see around us in our society of taking and keeping. Again, may your spirit guide us in our thinking. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.